I'm Dr. Shiloh. And I'm Dr. Scott. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. Today, our episode is a true crime documentary review on the film Long Shot. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. How are you, Dr. Scott? You know, I am still in the throes of moving. So any good vibes or juju out there that you guys can send me is greatly appreciated. Moving is really stressful. When is this move going to be done? Jeez. I, I think it's going to be like another two months, actually. My husband's going out of town on location to finish up a movie and oh, I can't, right. you know, I'm working full time. So that's my I life. I love you're taking your time with it, actually, because not enough people have that luxury. Yeah. I mean, it's, I have to because it's up and downstairs and yeah, so. Yep. All right. Well, so we are just a week and a half away from the first ever Parapod Festival. Right. Come hang out with us. Watch our talk with Hollyweird Paranormal. We're going to be talking about the crimes and ghosts of the Barclay Hotel. We will have a booth there as well. So we'll be there all day on April 1st. Go to parapodfestival.com to get your tickets and we'll see you there. Also, it's not too late to grab tickets for CrimeCon UK. We we will not be at CrimeCon in the U.S. in Orlando this year. So this is it. Folks, I'm so sorry, but we can only deal with one crime con each year. Yep. It's a big deal. Like it that, that one last year was a great experience, but damn, it wore me out. <laughs> That's Vegas for you. Yeah. <laughs> so come across the pond with us. Let's share a pint. I've got my pubs all mapped out that I'm going to hit up and get 10% off your tickets with the promo code confidential. And you'll get those over at the CrimeCon UK website. Yeah. If there's any way you can make it or any of our wonderful guests over in the EU that are going to head over for CrimeCon, definitely let us know. It'd be great to meet up with you guys. And on our most recent episode, 132, we focused on the subcategory of mass killers called family annihilators. And this is defined as the act of murdering an entire family. The aftermath of these crimes can leave a community reeling with shock and disbelief in the stark contrast of what are many times perpetrators who are viewed as responsible parents 
and even outstanding members of the community. Many times, these horrific crimes are associated with financial or emotional strain, mental health problems, or revenge. And they use methods that are rarely subtle and are predominantly violent. We touch on a few well-known cases that are recent in the news, as well as some more obscure examples. So please check it out when you get a moment. Absolutely. So hopefully we are bringing something a little lighter today. But first, before we get started, we need to talk about what we're watching or what we're listening to this month. So I am still in a bit of a rabbit hole. I binged a whole other podcast on Havana syndrome. Oh, right. Thanks to one of our listeners, Judith, who is, I would say more obsessed. I would say as obsessed with this now that I am, but she's definitely done more research. So it's called The Sound. It's very good. I think I'm still as confused and uncertain about what the hell's going on or was going on with all of that, but it was done very well. And it was different enough from the other podcast, Havana Syndrome. Right put out by Vice that I think it's worth a listen if you're at all interested. They talk to different people. They take a little bit of a different academic angle. So it was nice. I also listened to the six-part series from Behind the Bastards of the History of the Illuminati. Oh, cool. (laughs) So I'm kind of on like this conspiracy trip, I guess. (laughs) Just wanting some different out there stuff, but it was done really well as all their stuff is. As far as watching, I did go back and watch our documentary we're talking about today. And then I started the... Netflix documentary about the missing Malaysia flight MH370, which is yeah, because it it links uh, over from ours. Like if you if you uh, finish long shot, it goes right into that. And I had to click it off because I was like, oh, I don't even have time to get sucked into that. Do not watch it before you're about to get on a flight. I'm so glad I'm not flying anywhere for like a month and a half. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. What about you? What about you? So I, you know, like to cleanse my palate with a lot of fictional stuff, but unfortunately. (laughs) The fictional stuff that I listen to is like really challenging. Not me, sorry. The <laughs> stuff that I watch or listen to is pretty challenging. Severance is an mm. Apple TV with the most amazing cast and the most amazing concept and the weirdest, quirkiest humor. And yet it is, it's, I, I think that there's something very incredibly poignant about it that I really highly recommend. The Last of Us, which is just off the hook. Great. Oh, um, I finished watching. I felt like nothing could live up to episode three. And I just, I was, I was like, Dan, I'm like, no more zombies for me. I'm just done. Yeah. So I mean, it's good. It's, it continues to be good. It does. It really does. And I, if anybody's out there that is willing to start a letter writing campaign for Nick Offerman to be nominated for an Emmy for his one episode performance, I just think I actually had to stop that episode in the middle of it because Ooh. I had to like take a breath just for some of the moments he was making as an actor. I thought they were really amazing. And of course, The Mandalorian season three is back yep. with yep. with the best little puppet in the world who is Grogu. like, Grogu is back. It's such a good story. And of course, Pedro Pascal is like, his star is rising right now. And you're he's just so, riding that Pedro Pascal train right now. <laughs> he is so adorable. Like, and he's just enjoying it. He just, you know, he, he puts off this vibe like he's a really good guy. So please don't, don't have any like frozen bodies in your freezer pascal Please, i appreciate it Pedro, no yeah. and then of course this gem of the documentary that we watched today i actually watched it twice through one on regular speed and then one on one and a one and a half to like make sure that i was getting all the things and we're going to talk about why this is such a good one because it's really oh, yeah. a good one for a number of reasons but like i think this is one and i i like it for 
are different reasons that I like other ones, but we'll get back to that when we get yes. into our, the brain scores. Well, let's get into it. So this month's documentary review is on Longshot. It's directed by Jacob Lamendola, and it was featured at the Telluride Film Festival in 2017, the same year it ended up going to Netflix. Pretty impressive Rotten Tomato scores here. We have 89% and then 84% for the audience score. So pretty high for some of the documentaries we've reviewed thus far. So let me give you or start giving you a plot synopsis on this if you haven't had a chance to see it. And even, I mean, we're going to be giving a lot of spoilers right now, but even if we give you spoilers, it's, I guarantee it will be the best 40 minute investment because it's very short, Mm -hmm. so watchable, really good. But this documentary long shot is really tightly told. It's very engaging and it really illuminates the power of persevering and being dedicated and focused in charges that are false or charges that are incorrect. It's riveting. It's told in this tight format that revolves around a man named Juan Catalan. He's wrongly accused and jailed for a murder he did not commit. The filmmakers capture the intensity of this completely emotionally charged journey, and it takes the audience through the ups and downs of Juan's fight for justice, as well as allowing for actually a few humorous and very many poignant moments. It's a quick watch that is actually worth watching a couple of times at least to really get how much was at stake, as well as touching on some real injustices in the system. Yeah, I think even though this was the second or third time I've seen it, I teared up today watching it more than I had in the past, I believe. So definitely worth it. Yeah. The production utilizes interviews with key players in the case, including Juan himself and his star level defense attorney to lead the audience through evidence seeking that is just incredible. I mean, it could be called one in a billion as well as long shot, but absolutely that's not really a sports reference. So the title is just great for this. But I want to take a little moment to talk about why this is my all time favorite documentary, which I'll reiterate a little bit at the end. When <laughs> you have a documentary that opens with this wide camera shot sweeping over the blue seats of Dodger Stadium with Vin Scully's voice. I mean, longtime Dodgers announcer, legendary Hall of Fame broadcaster, literally the voice of an angel. Rest in peace, Vin Scully. I mean, it does not get better than that. It's like it was made for me and everyone else who grew up in L.A., alongside the Dodgers and being raised with them as I was. And I've been sitting in those seats for as long as I can remember. So this this was something that hit home with me. I probably gave this a little bit of this spiel when we did our violence in sports fandom episode when we talked about the Brian Stowe case. But I think there's this additional piece that I don't even know if I caught on to the first time I watched this, but the first time we meet one in this documentary, he's in that blue LA County jumpsuit in handcuffs in the courtroom. And he says his name and he says the year he was born, which is the same year I was born. And I was like, wow. oh, another connection. Like wow. right there, we've been living these very different but parallel lives, of course. So this is my standard to other true crime documentaries here. But just to start you guys off, we'll kind of go through this in a timeline fashion as we do and kind of talk about points here and there. So Juan Catalan was arrested in August of 2003. So it's been some time. I mean... 20 years now for the alleged murder of Martha Puebla in Los Angeles County, California. And just a few days prior to Martha's murder, Juan had attended a court hearing for his brother and Martha, this murder victim, had testified and the prosecution had put her up there to testify against his brother. So Juan and his family, his brother, 
they grew up in LA. It sounds like probably the Valley, he says like North of LA. And there's some Valley references a little bit. And his brother, Mario was definitely involved in crime. He talks about how that was happening early on. You know, he would notice when he would start bringing home stolen goods as a young teen. And then Juan does talk about this one incident where he starts to get wrapped up in those shenanigans. And he was the getaway driver for his brother and his friends in some sort of crime and gets busted for it. And they don't really talk like, you know, what happens. He says, basically, that was my first time seeing the inside of the jail. And I knew I never wanted to see it again. Right. And then you get this idea that he kind of goes on the straight and narrow from then. So Juan provides this background of I think he hits this real authentic balance of saying that his brother was really caught up in stuff. And he realized like when his brother was coming home, with like stereos and, Mm -hmm. you know, basically bringing an engine of a sports car into the living room or something, he knew what was up and he really did not want to be part of that life. Again, I don't know if he's, you know, sort of crafting this narrative, but I will say this, and this is something that is very important to the documentary is that one seems incredibly authentic throughout the entire thing. And he shares this moment about going and having a moment with his ex, who is the mother of his child and going over and like calling her late at night for a booty call. And she's like, no, don't, you know, I don't want to do that. And he's, he's kind of has a little smile on his face. He's like, I'm pretty persistent. Yeah. yeah. So I go over there and I have a horrible nightmare, like a premonition of being taken away from my family. And he goes, I don't know Mm -hmm. if it was aliens or I don't know if it was demons, but whatever it was, is like I woke up and I had had this really terrible dream. So he gets up the next day and he goes to work at his father's parts shop, a really clearly well done auto mechanic shop that his dad had set up. And within seconds of him showing up to work, he's surrounded by cops. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, all these cars drive up, all they, they take him and he is immediately arrested for the murder of Martha Pueblo. And his brother now had been arrested for another murder. And Martha had never identified anyone in court. Like she went in and she could not make any identifications on anybody. But immediately when she is brutally gunned down, and that's one of the other things that they do really well in this documentary is you're juxtaposing these flash cuts of being at Dodger Stadium along the same timeline of what's happening to Martha. And there's this back and forth that is really riveting, actually. And it's reported there was an eyewitness there on site that Martha had come out of her house at 10 o'clock at night. And her words that were heard was something like, don't do this. You know me. Don't right. do this. And then a shot rang out and she was killed. And there was one eyewitness that allegedly was able to identify Juan in the, you know, at a, in the middle of the night, basically mm-hmm. in the dark was able to see Juan enough to both identify him in a photograph and give the police artist enough information to do an artist rendering. Yes. So, and Martha was just 16 years old. So, Mm. you know, you really, I think the documentary goes, does a good job of sort of hitting home for you. Like this is a 16 year old girl that has seen some stuff and gets up there to testify against Juan's brother, whether she doesn't know anything truly, or is just so terrified to actually identify anyone that she just ends up not saying it. Right. So it's almost like they paint this picture of she got up there and testified, but she didn't really say anything. She didn't say anything against 
him or anyone else kind of a, you know, not effective witness in that way. Yet she's killed after her testimony in this brutal way of being gunned down in her, her front yard. So, so it's about this point. And again, like this documentary is only 40 minutes long. So it moves along really quickly. Very. We meet Todd Melnick, who is the attorney that Juan retains, I think through a cousin, he kind of hears about this hotshot attorney that has helped with some things. And he's a great character. He is fully invested in this kid. He believes his story from the beginning. You know, you just get this honest sense that he really believed what Juan was telling him and was going to put his nose to the grindstone to help get him out of jail. Because at this point, he's just sitting in jail. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, Canada, a vast idyllic land filled with beavers, loons, lumberjacks, and polite, friendly folks. We have those things for sure, but there's a darker side to the great white north, full of mystery, crime, the paranormal, and dark history. Join me, Mike Brown, and co-host Matthew Stockton every Monday for the Dark Poutine Podcast as we tell dark stories from north of the 49th parallel with the Ottaway game covering more international cases. You can listen to Dark Poutine for free wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Which is a miracle in itself, and that's not something that they really elaborate on. I mean, you, Mr. Melnick, is he's a little bit weathered, looks like a like a, a weathered ex model or something. He's a yeah. good looking guy, but older, and he's slick. He's really mm-hmm. slick and really smart. But as he's talking, it's like that's the thing that you don't ever find out is what was it that in your gut told yeah. you that this kid was innocent. Yeah. But it's almost like they're implying that he was just like, that's his ability or something. It's like he right. immediately knew, yep, I'm going to take it. Like, that's yeah. amazing to me. Yeah. So they have this composite sketch, which we'll talk about later yeah. <laughs> in one of our rants. And then, yeah, you have this six pack where apparently detectives tell Juan when they get him in to start interrogating him, look, you match the composite and someone picked you out of this six pack photographic lineup. So the idea is that when Martha was murdered, this was about 10 p.m. outside her home on May 12th of that year. And initially when they're interrogating Juan, they're like, "Okay, well, if you didn't do it, then where were you? And he's like, I don't know, because he's now being arrested in August. And do any of us know where we were last May 12th? Probably not. So in the moment, he doesn't remember. But then his girlfriend says, you know, through their communication, she's like, you were at the Dodger game that day because it was a a Mother's Day event. So here is sort of like the narrative we're running with is like, how does 
Mr. Melnick proved that he was at this Dodger game when Martha was being murdered. And this was a game that he had short notice that he got some tickets to go to. He didn't know who to take. He decided to take his little six-year-old daughter, his cousin, and a friend. Well, hold on. There's a little bit of a story here, too, that shows that he's a he's a, he's a a little <laughs> bit edgy, too, because he bought the tickets for his mom. Right. As a, or he got them. I think he got them because they were season tickets. They were Correct. from somebody else. And he gave them to his mom as a Mother's Day present, knowing that she wouldn't want to go. Right. So like, and he kind of has, <laughs> so like this little, he has this little <laughs> grin on his face, like, oh, you know, it's like kind of like working it. But he did want right. to spend time with his daughter. He wanted to get her introduced to the experience. Yes. So he's, you know, I love how we kind of like get sucked into Juan just talking about normal things. We're, we're sort of taken away for a moment from the fact that at this time he's sitting in jail. But he recounts how this was a game between the Dodgers and the Braves. He had these great season tickets. It's the ninth inning, the game's tied. And he's like, oh no, like this, you, you do not leave in the ninth inning when the game's tied. And no Dodger fan <laughs> leaves in a situation like that. We leave it like the seventh inning if it's being a blown out by the other team because we all want to beat traffic because traffic's so fucking it's horrible. horrible. It's horrible. <laughs> From Park. Yeah. It's a nightmare. And especially like really every game at Dodger Stadium pretty much gets sold out. So, you know, you're competing with 57,000 other people to get out of there. So he's talking about this, which is just as someone in LA who goes to Dodger games, you're like nodding your head. And then he says, but in the ninth inning, the Braves like pull way ahead. It's a blowout yeah. at that point. And so we decide to leave. But as he's leaving and walking out, he stops with his daughter to buy some baseball cards and they do a little bit of shopping before heading out. So you're kind of like, okay, at this point in the documentary, you're like, all right, he's leaving, but what time is it? And how is this lining up? You have that sort of in your head. So the defense starts to build for the prelim and they're trying to gather as much information or, you know, it's a hearing, a preliminary is basically a hearing to see if there's enough actual evidence to move to trial. And right. there is, and the DA is hungry for this case like this is a very very aggressive da mm -hmm. so so it's just the, a judge at a prelim like this is not in front of a jury or anything right, like that at this right. point it's just i mean it's, it was kind of a done deal that it was going to move forward because of the nature of the crime seriously i would say that but there it's there's always going to be a preliminary hearing there's a series of miracles that happen throughout this i know it's not just the one thing it's like a whole series of butterfly events that mm -hmm. have they not lined up this would have ended very badly. But Juan's girlfriend finds the tickets. So the attorney immediately contacts the Dodgers and they even interview like the then head of the Dodgers at the time whose mm -hmm. office received the, the call. And they're trying to find people who were seated around them. And so they, they, they are able to locate them and they're going as far as like Philadelphia. They're going yeah, Hawaii. Like Hawaii, all over the country. And people are moderately cooperative. They're like, yeah, I was there, but I don't really remember anybody like I wouldn't remember enough to be able to identify somebody and be on yeah. a witness stand. So there's Dodger vision, this in-house filming by the Dodgers and it's like security cams and there's the kiss cam. There's all sorts yeah. of stuff that they use. Right. So Melnick goes through a whole bunch of footage. I mean, it, like it takes yeah. him, what does he say that it takes him a day? He's like for a three hour baseball game. This took me all day long, which, yeah, which basically 
stop your bitching because like compared to what it could have been no, but like sure. you, like you were saying when we were prepping this is like there's all these different angles it's not just yeah. one camera it could be the same thing over and over again and then they do find him yep and they can identify it because it's a man with a little girl heading towards those seats and wearing the same kind of dodger jersey mm -hmm. that he owns but it's grainy so melnick knew though that it wasn't going to be enough so he keeps digging for more. And then it switched to a cut of Juan talking about his time in jail. You know, he was moved to Supermax. What is like technically in the county jail? What does that mean? Because I'm sure it's just I think of Supermax as like, you know, Florence, Colorado, federal prison. But for murderers, is there a certain section that they kind of put them in since this is just sort of holding well, look, I, I want to be very careful about saying this. I mean, he was he wasn't saying that he was at Men's Central Jail. He was saying he's at Supermax. So <laughs> even though they keep showing pictures of Men's Central Jail. Right. So there is an, a county facility that's a men's jail extension called Pitches. And it's mm -hmm. up, like it's up the mountain, basically. Yeah. And it's much smaller than it used to be. At the time he was there 20 years ago, it was a bigger facility, but they started kind of phasing it out. And jail, look, jail is not pleasant, especially mm -hmm. if it's not. You know, if you have a mental health condition and you're sort of in the area for people with mental health conditions, it may be a little bit easier. But, you know, Men's Central Jail and being up there in the High Valley, it's, it's not pleasant. You know, yeah. it, it's not pleasant. It's it's you have to watch your back all the time. I don't know how much would play into it that he had allegedly killed a teenager. You know, that oh, that's never a okay. good thing. Killing a female, killing a teenager, those things would not be looked on very kindly yeah. by the other inmates. So I don't know if maybe he was in one of the dorm settings. I mean, which is a little more comfortable because you're not crammed in like a, you know, sardine like down at Men's mm. Central. But still, you do have to watch your back. And it's especially if it's somebody who's trying to keep his life on the straight and narrow and stay clean, that yeah. would be a shocking experience. Most people come out of it going, you know, yeah, I don't need to ever go back there again. Well, and he even says like, you know, this is where the hardened guys were. So I'm guessing if they're they have the guys with the most serious of charges, like his is, these probably are a good percentage of career criminals that right. are there that is just not Juan's life, essentially. Right. And I mean, within any jail system, it's not just LA County, but any jail system is constantly challenged by the criminality within the inmates that exist. Mm. Like, please don't allow yourself to think that just when people are incarcerated that they're not continuing to engage in criminal activities because sure. drugs are huge and actually the idea of working up a drug debt is one of the things that causes people to get hurt mm. you know so you have a substance addiction problem or you're bored and you entertain yourself with drugs and then you stretch yourself out and you owe too much to one of the dealers on the yard you're in trouble so when he yeah. says you don't know what fear is until you hear a grown man screaming for help mm. you know there's probably something that precipitated yeah. that one shares this idea of these stories of people who get released or exonerated for their crimes 30 years later and he's it's terrifying him like i'm gonna be here for three decades yeah i'm gonna be one of those stories yeah Ugh, poor guy and then so in a, in a prelim you have people testify usually not everyone that you would bring at trial but really key witnesses and there's this footage of his six-year-old daughter being put on the stand and it's very adorable because she's just like looking around kind of like 
oh, what's happening? And, you know, she has clearly yeah, a caretaker with her that she's able to sit on the lap of while she's testifying. And the footage, basically while she's testifying there, just have the camera footage showing Juan, who is red-faced, tears streaming down his face. Yeah. And all she's doing is talking about basically a day at the stadium with her dad because the attorney asked like, well, what did dad buy you that day? And she's just recounting it in this sweet little voice. And he is just heartbroken that his daughter is having to be up there on the stand. And it's so powerful. Yeah, it's a really poignant moment. I mean, it's another one, you know, when we see a lot of true crime and crime page things that splash were these completely antisocial parents, you know, that have been responsible for the death of their children. And they're just ice cold. There's nothing there. You look at them. There's nothing there. This is not what was going on. This guy was just absolutely heartbroken that his daughter was having to be put through this. Yeah. So Melnick continues on there through the hearing, but he's also asking Juan working with him. He's asking about all the details of the game. And aside from all the details of the plays and the score, which Juan is like a complete human computer when it comes to sports. He's like those cops I work with that are just like sports (laughs) is this language they speak where I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But he said, oh, by the, you know what? They were filming something that day because it was really weird. Like when we went to get ice cream and we were coming back from the concession stand that we couldn't get down the stairs. And I had to ask this guy who was a production assistant and they had the production assistant like here it is like years later and he's getting teared up because he's like his only job is to keep people from going down those stairs while the camera's rolling once as they were filming something that day his attorney goes well let me go back to the dodgers media and they're flipping through flipping through flipping through oh yeah there's this hbo show that is being filmed so he calls hbo directly and it turns out it's the show curb your enthusiasm what the hell i know I know. And what's fascinating is you find out that they were doing no close-ups. They were trying to keep it as real as possible. Nobody mm-hmm. sitting around Larry David and his co-star knew what was going on. Right. Because right. it was the two actors. It was a PA holding people back for a second. They were mic'd, body mic'd. And yeah. then all the camera work was being done from literally the other side of the stadium. Yep. I mean, it is amazing with a with a telephoto lens. Really yeah. amazing. It is funny because they kind of talk about the production. They're like, oh God, of course Larry wants to film at Dodger Stadium because that's the storyline. And like, we can't fill a baseball stadium with a bunch of extras. So I guess we're filming at a real game. Yeah. <laughs> So just a little bit about Curb Your Enthusiasm. Larry David is the co-creator of this really, of the show that everybody knows, Seinfeld, which ran for many seasons on NBC. And in his show, Curb Your Enthusiasm, he plays actually a pretty accurate version of himself as this sort of misanthropic curmudgeon on a series that is basically improvised by all the actors. And I always want to give credit to my former boss, Allison Jones, who again is the queen of casting when it comes to edgy humor and finding unbelievable talent. Like she pulls from the groundlings from Second City. It's always actors. And you know, you have to explain to them, it's like, like, look, you're not the center of this scene. You are sort of the person who was put off by this weirdo's actions. And Allison you to... did this show too? Yes, of course. Oh she's done everything. God, she's I thought you knew that. done everything. Yeah, that's <laughs> why Deb, our friend oh. Deb, is on the show as well. Yeah. I haven't seen Deb's episode. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So again, Larry plays himself, but like an enhanced version of all of his worst qualities. Like he is verbally disinhibited. He's yes. constantly irritated by everything and anything in his life. Uh-huh. Like 
everything annoys him. And luckily he's surrounded by a group of incredibly patient people that leave him and other supporting cast members to really shine as whack jobs at times. Susie Essman is like the wife of one of his friends and she is this wonderfully sweet woman but the character she plays has the most foul mouth mm-hmm. and in interviews she goes oh my god i can't believe how many times they make me say fuck on that show because <laughs> it's just embarrassing but like larry david while his character actually is generally pretty well-meaning he's very self-centered and in his annoyance over small things he manages to irritate everybody around him we need to diagnose some characters sometimes oh yeah he's like <laughs> schizotypal or schizoid or something but each each episode story emerges from larry's own ignorance or sometimes just disregard for yes. well-established understandings of what's accepted in social interactions. (laughs) Yes, yes. And he also becomes very black and white in his thinking, leading to like so I could like I only think of this as a cringeworthy show because there's like (laughs) so many cringeworthy cringeworthy behavior from him because he's like insisting that others adhere to society's rules like the way that he kind of sees the world. Which right. Is just so he he's like pissed off that people aren't responding to these rules. And it's the rules that like, apparently they're the only one he knows. Yeah. Like yeah, he'll get into but... arguments with chefs of like, <laughs> yeah, you know, your, your sauce is a little too saucy. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> and how dare you like not see it my way? Yeah. Right. So the series is now run intermittently for 23 years. And in August, 2022, HBO renewed the series for a 12th season. So anyway, you can catch all this on HBO and we'll let you know exactly what episode to see that weaves into our documentary today. Yeah. So the great thing is that right slap in the middle of this documentary, it suddenly does a cut to weirdo Larry David <laughs> on camera. That it's perfect. That's there. so strange. The episode itself is called The Carpool Lane. It's season four, episode six. And the whole setup is that Larry is a huge Dodgers fan. He's going to Dodger Stadium and the traffic is so bad yeah. that he's like, well, screw this. You know, I'm by myself. I, the only way to get there would be in the carpool lane and I can't. Uh-huh. So he pulls off and <laughs> he picks up a sex worker Yep. and he's like, like she comes over to solicit. Yep. And he's like, oh, wait, I could put her in the carpool lane. So you can see the wheels so turning. Sweet. The way she plays the character is absolutely so sweet. She's oh, it's hilarious. wonderful. We'll put a link to the IMD page for that actress. She's so great. And get this. The actress playing the sex worker is Jack A. And yep. she's adorable and engaging and tottering around on these huge heels up and down those steps at the stadium. Like matching him, like yeah. verbal hit for hit. Oh, just, absolutely. Like she is just, go- they're going back and forth. <laughs> it's just great. <laughs> well, but back to the documentary, Juan happens to be sitting where they shot a short scene in which Larry goes down to talk to a friend. So Juan's daughter had asked him for some candy or popcorn or ice cream or something. Mm -hmm. And when they come back together, the PA lets them go through to walk down to return to their seats, even though the tape is still rolling. And he wasn't supposed to do that. He was supposed to hold everybody back. And just for some reason, he said, you know, that's the kind of thing. Then when they're interviewing him, he says, that's the kind of thing that would get you fired. But I just, I just did it. Yeah. He's like, I'm I'm just like, I was this dumb PA. And so, you know, you have all of these heartbreaking and lovely things kind of coming to a head, I think at this point. And what they do is so beautiful because it's like the documentary almost goes silent and they 
they just roll the footage that's happening. And so you're looking down the aisle to the field. You can see Larry David like squatting down, talking to his friend and then sort of standing up and coming back like he's going to start the scene over. And you see Juan and with his daughter by his hand come in front of the camera and you're like, yep. holy fuck, like that's them. And it's clear as day. Yeah. Just incredible. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. So- and- you have all these people talking about it. And then, like you said, with the PA who is also being interviewed, you know, everyone's being interviewed with these beautiful front facing shots. Yeah. And what they do is you start to understand is they're playing that footage for the PA in real time for the first time. And you just see his eyes get glassy. It was just so powerful. He was about to lose it. He looked like he was really about to lose it. Like when he realized what a role he played in saving somebody's life, I think this case really highlights the importance of using all available evidence to ensure that justice is served. I mean, I think that's just an incredibly clear point that is being made here. I think that where it gets wonky for me is that as far as my politics are concerned, you know, I'm, I really am very much for personal liberties and privacy, but I also know that the places with a lot of cameras and a lot Mm -hmm. of CCTV, you know, are able to track criminals in action. Yep. And so if we could also use it to exonerate people, then even better. But what's interesting is they they do the, the DA going back. She is a quite a formidable individual herself. She's got a nickname called the Sniper mm-hmm. because she had gotten so many death penalty charges. She is still asserting that although it says that he was on the tape at 9, 10 p.m. at the latest, he still could have left after that and committed the murder at 10 p.m. So they had to look for more evidence, which is absolute bullshit. <laughs> because you cannot like, get out of that yep, stadium. Yep. It's not possible I to think get of out like of that stadium. The that drive quickly. test they do on serial podcasts. And I'm like, go do a drive test at 910 out of Dodger Stadium. Oh, and for, like, and let's let's also expand on that. Before you even get to the idea that you're going to drive, walking out of there in a crowd of people, even if everybody's not leaving at that time, it's still going to be absolute hell. Yes. So speaking of cereal, what the, the attorney Melnick ends up doing is starts looking for cell tower data because Juan is like, Hey, when I was leaving, my girlfriend and I are calling each other. Cause she's like, Hey, are you out of the game yet? You know, that sort of thing. So he, I mean, total side note, but like he says, I remember that they pinged OJ Simpson's cell phone. And right. that's what gave me the idea when that case had happened. And you just think about like, God, what the hell was the technology like back then probably wouldn't hold up in court today, but even 20 years ago, I mean, that's pretty risky to do, but yeah. What he ends up doing is finding that Juan's phone was activating a cell tower that had a mile radius, essentially right there around Dodger Stadium at 10, 12 p.m. when the murder was taking place, essentially. So he had been calling his girlfriend at that time. And a new character they bring in sort of at this part, because they're talking about this evidence and they're cutting back to the court scenes at the prelim, is the judge that was sitting on this prelim, who I was like shocked that she would be a part of this because you just don't see that very often. But she's being interviewed and she's talking about, you know, cell phone data being really new and confusing to her. And she's trying to write down all these times and keep track of it. And then she says, you know what, I was so invested in this case, but really befuddled because I have this victim that I have to make sure we're doing justice for, but possibly a guy who's innocent. So she ends up as kind of the last thing that she's going to do to help her make her decision is take home the interrogation tape. And she says she just listens to it over and over again. And they're playing it 
it in the audio. She's even having her kids, which I don't know how old her kids are, <laughs> but she's having like other ears in the house listen. And she's like, is this a guilty man saying these things? Because he is like respectfully battling with those detectives saying, what are you even talking about? Like you're pinning this on the wrong person and you're going to regret this one day because it's not me. And I just thought it was so powerful for a judge to say, you know, I was very anguished by this case. Right. And here's here's the things I had to consider that were also heavy. Listen to the 48 Hours podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. Sometime in the early 80s, REO Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced middle-of-the-night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks. And he's telling me about how he discovered a real-life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America. Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across. But nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina. There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnumtown. Varnumtown is available wherever you listen to podcasts. New England is known for its charming towns, comforting foods, and of course its historical contributions, but the Down East region can have a dark side. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and on my weekly podcast, Dark Down East, I dig into both decades-old and modern-day cases from my home state of Maine and the greater New England area. In each episode of Dark Down East, I seek insight from law enforcement officials, family members, and other loved ones who are both deeply familiar with the cases and the individuals at the heart of them. Join me as I unveil intricacies of these stories that are often overlooked, honor the grit of those searching for justice, and shine a light on cases that you aren't hearing on other podcasts. Listen to Dark Down East now, wherever you're listening. Yeah, I agree. I think that she's a powerful character and again, another miraculous manifestation of yeah. of something of an event in this whole thing that could have gone horribly wrong if she had not done that. I do get like I guess I'm a little uncomfortable that she took it home and had her kids listen and said I want to hear your opinion. I mean, I'm of two minds about it. Like that scene, I get a little squeegee on that like mm -hmm. really that's what happens. I don't think that's <laughs> that seems uh, <laughs> make me a little uncomfortable. So I did want to focus on another aspect of this that is so important, and that is eyewitness fallacy. We've, we've reviewed some of this in previous episodes. The issue yeah. with eyewitness testimony is that it has absolutely been shown to be unreliable and susceptible to so many errors that yes. are affected by so many factors. Yes. So memory, as we know, can be influenced by 
a variety of factors, such as leading questions when you're being interrogated and the passage of time and different perspectives. And this is all well supported in the research. Eyewitnesses can be highly fallible. And the Innocence Project reports that eyewitness misidentifications played a role in 70% of wrongful convictions. Wow that ended up being overturned through DNA testing. So I wanna share a quote that is also important and it says, witnesses may express biased views or recall events inaccurately if they are under stress or overwhelmed at the time of witnessing the event or during the stress of deposition on the stand. We have to view eyewitness accounts with caution and it is very important for both sides of the court to not rely solely on them in legal proceedings. That's just plain and to the point and absolutely yeah. should be remembered every time. The problem is that it's been historically such an integral part of the legal process that the research just gets lost. I mean, like yeah. we have all this research, it's like, hey, this is not reliable at all, but they keep moving forward with it because it's just, it's been such a trope for so long. Yes. We yes. hope, you know, we're going to sit here and hope that prosecution and defense would always consider other evidence and corroborating testimonies, but that doesn't always happen. You know, of course, all of that information should come from reliable sources before making any judgment based on just one or even more eyewitnesses. And as this documentary shows, that's not always the case. Yeah, definitely. And there's several key factors that make it problematic. Memory reconstruction. So human memory is not like a video recording that could be played back perfectly, like B-roll of a Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> right. A more accurate description is that memories are actually reconstructed from fragments of what we saw. And more significantly in the legal system, memories can be altered by questioning or discussion of the event or seeing media reports about the event. All of this starts seeping into your head and then starts reconstructing perhaps what you think you remember. So eyewitnesses may not remember events exactly as they occurred and even more problematic may even develop false memories or memories are just sort of filling in gaps over time. Oof, yeah. Another problem is these techniques like lineup procedures photographs, and artist composites. Because if the photographs used are different sizes or have different lighting, it can cause one person's picture to stand out over the others. And studies have shown that in some cases, law enforcement officers conducting the lineup that know who the suspect is may very well unconsciously signal to the witness who they should be choosing. Yeah. So lots of lab studies on that, that it's we're, we're not, we know that there have been cases, of course, of law enforcement professionals sort of tapping their finger, doing something super obvious to say like, this is the guy. But even in research studies, they've been able to say like, no, they don't even know some of these un unconscious gestures they're doing. Or like you said, how the, the lighting or the arrangement of the photos are, there's just a lot of problems with photo lineups. But also going back to a little point you touched on before is the anxiety and stress. So emotions can absolutely alter a person's perception of what they saw. And this will lead to inaccurate identifications or inaccurate testimony. And just witnessing a crime can be traumatic, a very, very traumatic experience that causes that sort of anxiety and stress that we're talking about. And your brain is just encoding memory different when yeah. you're under that. With all those um, chemicals being flushed through it. Yeah. 
Yeah. There's also research that shows that the use of a weapon during the commission of a crime can aggravate emotions as that focus on the weapon narrows rather than the focus on the suspect or other details. That's just our body's inclination to focus on what can hurt us in the moment. And I really like that the judge in this documentary talks about that on the stand when she's sort of going through her list of reasons why she's about to make the decision she's going to make, where she says this witness probably had great intentions, but he was also under a great amount of stress when shots start ringing out against Martha. So good on her for bringing that up, because to me, it was like signaling a little bit of research. <laughs> yeah, I I was impressed by that as well. You know, also there the issue of visual characteristics, racial differences in the makeup of everyone involved, the investigators, the alleged perpetrators, the victims, that can all work together to mm -hmm. affect identifications. And without going too much into it, I don't want to go on a full rant, but one of the things that pops out to me in this documentary is they show a set of photographs, artist composite, and then our alleged perpetrator, Juan. Yeah. And to me, I'm a white guy working in a very integrated and diverse work population. So maybe my exposure over the past 20 years of working with people from different backgrounds, different cultures allows me to recognize it. I don't think any of those photographs look like one, mm. you know, just because somebody's got a short haircut and a mustache, right? Like there were the face shapes were different. The eye shapes were different. The lip shapes were different. And I think that he was picked because of the proximity to his brother. I mean, I think it was just an easy well, thing to I do think at the end, when they're doing the depositions on the detectives, they ask the detective, is it true that you, nobody actually picked him out of a lineup? You circled it and told him someone picked him out to sort of get him to admit guilt. Like, you know, police can lie in an interrogation and there's all these like little tricks you can do. Like, you know, you come in with your evidence bag and put it down and be like, oh, we got your fingerprints. And that's one of the points that they make at the end is that no one actually picked him out of that lineup. The cop circled it, um, wrote fake initials, and then said, boom, we had someone identify you out of this lineup. Well, however, I'm going to double, I'm going to double down. <laughs> I thank you for, for delineating that. But I also am going to double down that that composite drawing Oh was not the same person. So, it was also really badly done. Sorry. It was so bad. <laughs> so bad. And throughout, the DA is saying, this sketch is strikingly similar to Juan Ooh. Catalan. And I could not roll my eyes hard enough every time because it just like looks like as if someone was like, hey, can you draw a 20-year-old Mexican-American man from LA? Like, this is the caricature that they would have drawn. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, good on her for being a diligent DA, but yeah, that was badly done. Boy, that's gonna, yeah. that doesn't, that doesn't age well. That, <laughs> that does not a murderer make. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, it's just to have it all really on an eyewitness and this sketch just silly. But look <laughs> at the ramifications of this, because if, you know, if she had been asserting this and it yeah. had been a strong enough assertion and then... They hadn't gone to the game, right? Oh, right. What, what? What if? Well, and this is what is, I think, is a one of the most poignant points for me is when, because they don't dive into this race stuff, you know, as really a theme too much in, in this documentary. But when his girlfriend says, imagine if he had stayed home to watch the game that night. Right. Who would they have believed? Me? My mom? His 
little six-year-old daughter saying, yeah, daddy was home. And it is just sort of like, were his, he said, she said, but you get the undertones of like, would they believe this, you know, Latinx family as opposed to whomever else is accusing them or who's trying to say that they look like the composite sketch. So it was, it was a really important point there. All these miraculous points happen. He could have been at the game and that PA could have said, hold up, hold up, hold up. Yeah. Like, let's get this shot done. And then he never would have been on Mm -hmm. clear camera. All these things could have happened a very different way with a very different outcome, but he was exonerated. He received $320,000 from the city of LA as a result of a lawsuit settlement. And just as importantly, I mean, I'm glad that he got a settlement for what he had to go through, but four gang members were found to be responsible for the murder of Martha and they weren't sent to federal prison with life sentences. Yeah. Yeah. So the judge did a good job. You know, she threw it out at the prelim. It didn't move any further than that. And what a, you know, you don't get an idea of how long this prelim took that Juan was sitting in jail. And I'm sure there's some horrific rubric calculation they do to say, okay, your life those days sitting in jail was worth $320,000. But I think it was a quite a bit of time because he keeps talking about dates getting like of hearings yeah. getting pushed back. So we're at least talking months here. So yeah, that's the long shot. Because our episode is longer than the documentary itself. Oh my <laughs> gosh. You're welcome. <laughs> there you go, folks. There you go. So ratings. I mean, should think? be no surprise. I'm going to give it five brains. This is going to be my standard from which I rank all the others, even though I probably have another one in my mind that is a five brain worthy documentary, but so, so different and for different reasons. So what I liked about it, it's short. It's my jam, 40 minutes. Yes, I could do that. Just beautifully shot. And you get just what you need from every person interviewed. Yeah. There's, there's not a lot of filler there, clearly. And they just had the key people. Larry David to be there, the judge to be there. And then you just have the backdrop of it being LA, quintessential LA with the Dodgers, with this Hollywood twist. I mean, I don't know. It makes me want to go to a baseball game. I'm ready for summer. I'm tired of this shitty rain we're having. It feels like Seattle. Oh, stop it. I love it. it. (laughs) Oh, it's wonderful and we need it and it's great. What Except, about you? I mean, well, well, you so know you how I feel about the rain. You I give the, the rain, rain five, brains. five brains. Yes. <laughs> Look, I loved how tight it was. It was short and maybe there is additional story that could have been told, but they decided not to. But too many times on Investigation Discovery or any of the, you know, plethora of outlets we have for true crime stuff, they just milk the audience. Yep. They milk it with, you know, long drawn out recaps. And then they recap something three or four times throughout the episode. And there's like literally 20 minutes of commercials. And that is frustrating for me because the story is not that substantial. And I would rather it be told well and strong. And then even like one of the things that I love here is that it's a linear story with all these unbelievable, miraculous things that happen instead of red herrings. You know, that's a big one in true crime that like the red herrings of like, but what about her ex? Bubba was a greasy mechanic on a building that used to be a mortuary. Could he have been the one who dismembered her? And oh, wait, he's innocent. No, he's not him. It's not him. Yeah. They do that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I hate that. It's like, oh, great. You just put Bubba, who's this innocent, hardworking guy. Now he's going to have his name and face in rotation on this dumbass show 
for yeah. the rest of eternity. So, so how anyway, many brains? I, I gave it five brains. Yeah, definitely Yay. five brains. Oh, and at the end, because I was going to say, you reminded me, there's no reenactments in this. There's not like, yeah. you know, that cheesy thing. But at the end, they show him and his now adult daughter sitting in their seats where they were sitting, just empty stadium for some beautiful shots. So yeah, that was really very cool. cool. So thanks, folks. This is yeah. like a really... Good one. We highly recommend it, even though we've basically given you spoilers for all of it. It's, I highly recommend watching it. Let us know about your thoughts as well. And then also, if you're fascinated by stories like this that focus on just like a really minute moment in a series of events that change the entire storyline, there's a wonderful podcast out there. The episodes are only like 20 to 25 minutes long. It's called One Small Thing. Ooh. Really, really like it. So give it a give it a shot. And thanks for checking in. We'll be back with another episode next week, as we always do. Yeah. And with more news about our upcoming events, we have a couple of very exciting upcoming events that we haven't really shared yet, but we'll be talking about those more. Yes. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for sticking around. We'll have a bonus episode for you next week. And we'll see you then on LA. Not so. Confidential. Thanks, guys. Bye, folks. Dearly, thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Earcult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. Please check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not dash so dash confidential dot com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live stream scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we would be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.